Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, praying always, or as my Spanish-speaking friends say, orando siempre, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. That utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, in that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing, Tychicus a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Years ago, I read a story that troops training and fighting in Iran, or Iraq and Afghanistan, there was times where they were firing more than one billion bullets a year. This caused an ammunition shortage all over the world. Police departments were unable to get much needed ammunition or carry adequate rounds. And according to the story, dozens of police departments were experiencing delays for as long as a year for handgun and rifle ammunition. The shortages also caused the price of ammunition to double. Few things are more troubling than entering a battle ill-equipped or unprepared. No one wants to see soldiers or police officers fighting a war unarmed or unprepared. Paul was no different. We're called to battle a foe that we cannot possibly defeat without the spiritual armor that God gives us. Remember what we've already learned. Our enemy is Satan and his demons and hosts of wickedness. Our enemy is personal and deceitful and invisible and powerful and persistent and cunning and wicked. We fight with truth, our belt. We fight with holiness and righteousness, our breastplate. We fight with the gospel, our shoes. The sacrifice of Jesus provides peace with God and the peace of God. We fight with faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus. That's our shield. With confidence, we know that we can stand whatever spiritual assault the enemy brings against us. We've already learned that we can submit to God. We can resist the devil and he will flee. 
with assurance of salvation in the Lord Jesus, our helmet. We can hold our heads high in the battlefield, knowing that we're protected against the crushing blows of doubt and discouragement that's brought to us by the enemy. Our modern weapon of choice is the handgun. But what good are guns without bullets? And you see, prayer is the ammunition of our warfare. There's a huge debate in our culture and society right now about what kind of a society and a culture we're, that we're going to be. But can you imagine, can you imagine there, there would be no gun discussion if there were no bullet discussion. Prayer is our ammunition, but prayer is more than our ammunition. Prayer is firing the winning shot. Prayer is the decisive shot in our battle. Prayer is our supply line. Prayer is our link with heaven's headquarters. Both our orders and our supplies come through prayer. Without fervent, effectual prayer, we won't be able to fight effectively. We won't be able to preach persuasively. We won't be able to communicate convincingly. We will find it difficult to minister peace or love or grace apart from persistent, prevailing prayer. Without prayer, it's like hitting the battlefield. Imagine, imagine you have all of the sophisticated body armor known to man. You have advanced weaponry. You have no ammunition. Paul reminds us to stay strong in prayer. We're to be bold in battle. We're to cultivate closeness with faithful friends. We're to... Make sure that the love of Jesus is found everywhere. And so look at the believer's prayer in verse 18. Look what it says. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Paul lays out four alls of prayer. The Christian begins and ends the battle on his knees, on her knees. So what are the four alls? Number one, we pray at all times. That means we pray on a regular basis and on a consistent basis. Number two, we, with all prayer and supplication or request, that means we pray things generally and we pray things specifically. And number three, with all perseverance, because good soldiers stay alert. Good soldiers don't fall asleep on duty. Good soldiers don't abandon the mission. And with all supplication for all the saints, since God's people are united in one new society, one new man. What Paul is making reference to is the body of Christ and the church of Christ. Edward Payson said, prayer is the first thing, the second thing, the third thing necessary to minister. 
Pray, therefore, my dear brother. Pray, pray, and then pray again. I suspect that Paul continues with the theme of the believer's spiritual armor. If that's the case, I'm going to suggest to you that it is the case. Then this would mean that this is number seven on the list of the Christian in complete armor. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection or completion. I'm going to suggest to you that it gives us a hint at how complete prayer makes you as an equipped saint. We pray at all times. This means constant, continual, regular, consistent prayer. I've already said that prayer is an admission that you can't and that God can. In other words, it's an attitude of the mind and of the heart. It's a temperament if you will. It doesn't mean vain prayer. It doesn't mean repetitious prayer. I grew up in a culture and a society, at least a, a religious culture and society, where you did repetitive prayer. I mean, who can't say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. You don't have to even think about it. You just, it's, you just put it in gear and there you go. That's not what it's talking about. The prayer is a, a wonderful prayer and a perfect prayer, but a meaningless prayer unless you think about what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it. So when is it a good time to pray? Always. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we read, These all continued in one accord, in prayer and supplication, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. When we see the birth of the church and the awakening that takes place and the descent of the Holy Spirit... They were in one place and they were praying. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says, pray continually in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Abraham Lincoln liked to tell the story of two Quakers and their discussion about Lincoln and Jeff Jefferson Davis, the president of the southern states. I think Mr. Jefferson will win this war, said the first one. What dost thou think? Or why dost thou think so? Because Jefferson is a praying man. And so is Abraham, a praying man. That's true, answered the first man. But the Lord will think Abraham is joking. Now, yes, life has room for joking. But prayer is no joke. If you were with Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, you would have found him often on his knees, praying, interceding, pleading for his country, and pleading for the people. Christians are to exert effort. They're to exercise some sort of discipline. This doesn't mean that, that prayer is a continuous, uninterrupted stream or strain. But it does mean that it's a position of the heart. It's a posture. 
of, of who you are on a regular basis. Thomas Kelly says in the Testament of Devotion, quote, there's a way of ordering our mental life on more than just one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking and discussing and seeing and calculating and meeting the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings, unquote. There are times when you are speaking or talking or reading and you're having a conversation, but in the back of your mind, you understand that you need to pray for that person. You need to pray for their marriage. You need to pray for their employment. You need to pray for their holiness. You need to pray because things are happening in their life that are going to require a supernatural intervention. We pray and petition. That means all kinds of prayers. I have a note in my Bible to remind me about meditation, number one, confession, number two, adoration, number three, submission, number four, petition, number five. So when I am praying, I am thinking about this. I'm reflecting on what the Bible is saying. I'm confessing my sins. I'm uh, worshiping the Lord, submitting to, to his His principles, and then praying and petitioning him for my needs. General Eisenhower said, quote, prayer gives you the courage to make the decisions you must make in crisis and the confidence to leave the results to a higher power, unquote. This president wasn't, quote, unquote, religious by any stretch of the imagination, but he knew that there was a supernatural intervention that was necessary and Paul writes with all perseverance <laughs> it was Spurgeon who said it was by perseverance that the snail made its way into the ark of God <laughs> this means obedience one step at a time it, this is persistent prayer. This is what he means by pers perseverance. Let me just be blunt. It means you don't give up. And it's easy to give up. If you've been praying for your father forever, your mother forever, your loved ones forever, and nothing seems to change, nothing seems to ever change. Paul is encouraging us to say, and saying, don't give up. Who are you praying for? Are you praying for your unsaved husband? Are you praying for your mother? Are you praying for your father? Are you praying for your child? Jesus encourages us and he says, be persistent. Don't give up. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, the Lord says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Jesus uses strong language to communicate the fact that prayer grows in intensity. Ask implies that we know and that we're aware of our need. The moment that someone asks me something, it's a concession that they need something from me. We ask because we need something. 
The moment you ask, you become aware that you have a need. People ask when they have a need. The word ask suggests humility. And the reason why it suggests humility is because the person who asks also believes the person asked has an answer or resources that might be available. Seek involves asking, but adds action to the request. In other words, seeking is I need something, but I'm willing to go out and look at how I might obtain it. We don't just ask for help, but now we're going to get up and we're going to look for someone and we're going to look for something who can give us help. That takes effort. The final step, knock, it includes asking, looking, but it also insists on persevering or prevailing. The picture is a picture of a person who knocks and keeps on knocking until he or she gets an answer. We call. The, the way that I think about it is you call someone and, and it keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. And you don't just let it ring one time or two times or three times. Most people who are phone solicitors are going to hang up at that point. But you're going to go, no, I'm going for four and I'm going for five. And finally, when you get to 10, you get the voicemail and you go, look, I want you to call me. You don't give up. The famous Englishman William Gladstone told of a little neighbor girl who really believed in the power of prayer. Her brother made a trap in order to catch sparrows and she prayed a prayer. She prayed that the trap would fail. For three days, her face was radiant when she prayed and her absolute faith and confidence in the futility of the trap was noticeable, especially to her mother who asked, Julia... How can you be so positive? She smiled. Because, dear mama, I went out three days ago and I kicked the trap to pieces. <laughs> well, you laugh because you get it. You understand that we pray like it all depends on God and then we do something like it all depends on you. Do you need to persist in prayer. Remember, we're in a battle. And the person who perseveres in prayer is going to receive the answer. And they're going to trust God. Jeremiah 33, 3. I will answer thee. And I'll show thee great and mighty things. When you're not hearing something, you need to be able to go to Jeremiah 33 and go, Lord, I know. I, you said, ask, seek, knock. You said in Jeremiah 33, I'll answer you and I'll show you great and mighty things. You see, prayer isn't God reluctantly caving in to your persistent pressure. He says, with all supplication for all the saints... Most Christians pray, sometimes, for some people, with some perseverance. But Paul says, pray for all the saints. Not just for the Christians in your family. Not just for the people in your group. 
not just for the people in your church, not just for the people in your denomination, but all brothers and sisters all over the world. And, and I confess, my primary prayer is going to begin with my family. And it's going to continue with you. I think about you throughout the week, even though you don't always know it. Sometimes I'm thinking about your marriage and I'm thinking about your life and I'm thinking about your circumstance and I'm overwhelmed because there's so many people who are so hurt. But then I have to continue with my prayers. One of the things that I found to be one of the most helpful tools that I've ever had is my personal prayer diary and daily planner. I found out about this 30 yeah, 30 years ago, I was introduced to it. It's put out by YWAM in Seattle, Washington. It's a, it's a personal prayer diary. But what it does is it gives me a weekly prayer plan. It gives me a, a, a minder. But it also gives me a guide to intercession and reflection. In January, the persecuted church. In February, the disability in Ghana. Building hope. The tribes of Israel. When I'm looking at, like, for instance, just... This week, as I'm going through February, and I'm praying throughout the week, I'm, I'm praying for the people in Poland, I'm praying for the people in the Demo Democratic Republic of Congo, in South Sudan, in Burkina Faso, the disabled in Guyana, and Mongolia. What this does is it, 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 it insists and it reminds me to go a little bit further and pray a little bit harder. All Christians everywhere, we pray. We pray for the mature and the immature because guess what? No one ever outgrows the need for prayer. When I was traveling and teaching in California this weekend, I, I texted several people and I said, just please pray for me. Pray for me. Pray that God will help me. No one ever outgrows the need for prayer and no one ever becomes immune from Satan's fiery darts. We all need protection and with the protection we need a united, not a divided defense. There are so many things that are worthy of our prayers but Paul makes sure that we understand that a great deal of our prayers should be devoted to one another. So how do we pray? We pray definitely. We pray specifically. We pray consistently to the Lord. Behind every great move of God, behind every great outpouring of the Spirit are men and women who pray daily and definitely. Paul says, don't forget to stay awake. And don't forget to stay alert. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, quote, perceived the mouth of hell hard by the wayside in the valley of the shadow of death and saw flame and smoke and heard hideous noises that he was forced to put up his sword and betake himself another weapon called all prayer. So he cried in my hearing, O oh Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul, unquote. It's reminds me 
of what he's talking about. To remain vigilant. Jesus said, watch. He said, watch because of his imminent return. But he also said, watch at the outset of temptation. When the apostles failed to watch, it led to the results in the Garden of Gethsemane. With some disloyalty on the part of some and cowardice on the part of others, no wonder Jesus says, watch and pray. So what does it mean to pray in the spirit? It has to mean minimum that we need the Holy Spirit's help. That praying in the spirit means insensitivity to and submission to and an awareness of what the Holy Spirit can bring to us. We need the Holy Spirit's help to pray. And we need the Holy Spirit's imparting of strength to pray. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8 verse 26 where he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groaning which cannot be uttered. In other words, whatever this speech is, it's not verbal, it's not articulate, it's not necessarily auditory, but there's something inside of you. Sometimes you're awakened in the middle of the night and you feel something, some sense of urgency. It's okay for you to pray. You go, Lord, I, I have no idea. Maybe you're even aware someone's in trouble, someone's sick, someone's hurt. You plead and you intercede. And sometimes it's okay to even go, I have no idea what to talk about. Many people have a prayer language that they exercise. And certainly I'm one of those people who believe in, in the gifts of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in chapter 14, it talks about speaking with the tongues of men and of angels. Apparently, this is some sort of speech that isn't from the planet Earth, but there is a celestial language that for whatever reason, God imparts to some. Is that possibly part of it? Possibly. But minimum, it has to mean a complete submission to the presence of the Holy Spirit and a deep desire for the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so we have the believer's prayer and the believer's preach. Look what it says in verses 19 and 20. And for me, he adds himself to the list. Pray for all the saints. And look what he says in verse 19. And for me. That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. It's interesting to me. Paul doesn't say, pray for me, I'm in jail. Pray for me, I don't eat every day. Pray for me because I don't get water on a regular basis. Paul includes himself in the supplication and he makes a specific request. Remember what I've said. Prayer is an admission of dependence and a reliance upon God. Even Paul needs prayer. Even Paul, who has this incredible testimony, who's so used by God. Paul asks the saints in Ephesus 
for prayer, for safekeeping, for encouragement. But most of all, he says, I want the opportunity to preach the gospel. Note what it says, with words. And for me, the, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly. The reason why I think this is so important, Paul doesn't just go, you know, just hope that they see by my good behavior what a swell guy I am. Or that just because I'm a good person, someone's going to stop me and say, you know what, I couldn't help but noting, noticing you're, you're some sort of observant rabbinic Jew and you, you know, you're, you're, you're a swell guy and a great guy. That's not what he says. He goes, I want to open my mouth and I want to say, preach boldly the mystery of the gospel. We often say, pray for me. I know that I do. But sometimes it's this vague religious request. But it can be a specific request in the heat of battle. Paul's missionary adventures in certain ways had come to a halt. Or at least put on hold. He's awaiting trial. He's chained to a Roman guard. Now Paul makes a request for spiritual reinforcements. He's basically saying, I want an opportunity to continue what God has asked me to do. Wisdom knows where personal strength begins and ends, and Paul is wise enough and humble enough to know that he can't make it without the prayerful support of brothers and sisters. And that's why it's so important that you pray for me and that you pray for one another. Let me just put it to you differently. Are you praying for one another? Or are you waiting for an invitation? Often that's exactly what we do. We think that maybe nobody needs to know Later on in the text, Paul is going to say that Tychicus is going to make his way there and that he's a faithful minister and he's going to make all things known to you. Paul wants them to literally know what's going on in his life. And so he says, again, it's interesting. He says, don't pray necessarily that I have strength to bear the chains or to release me from the chains or to help me with my, with my plea as I, as I go to court before the emperor. He's asking for boldness for the gospel. Now, you've got to understand something. He's asking for boldness to preach the gospel. I'm going to pause for just a second. Do you know why? It could very well be that there were moments of fear and trepidation. This from Paul. He's, he, he's thinking, you know, really? Do I have to preach the gospel to every single soldier who's assigned to me when they're taking shifts in this prison? It could very well be that 
something was happening where that boldness was starting to retreat just a little bit. I, now, now again, why? Because the world is hostile to the gospel. You know that. You already know that. You're already disturbed by that. You understand that if you say to a person, hey, you, you know, are you a Christian or or do you have any spiritual beliefs? Or tell me what you believe about Jesus. Or tell me what you believe about the Bible. Or tell me what you believe about heaven and hell. There are going to people who go, they're going to roll their eyes. And they're going to go, oh no. You're one of those people. And you want to have one of those kinds of conversation. Now remember, Paul is a prisoner. Now I want you to see the insight. He's a prisoner, but he doesn't want to leave the battlefield. He's under house arrest, but he doesn't want to leave the battlefield. And sometimes sickness will cause us to want to leave the battlefield or depression or unhappiness will cause us to want to leave the battlefield or we've got some physical or financial or personal difficulty and we think, you know, because of my physical or my financial or my personal difficulty, I'm unprepared to wage the war that God has called me to fight. Paul's missionary adventures may have been placed on hold, but Paul wants the opportunity to make the mystery of the gospel known. And what is that mystery? What is he talking about when he talks about the mystery of the gospel? In a word, it means that believing Jews and believing Gentiles are united in Christ. That Gentiles and Jews share equal privileges with Jesus as the head of a new man. He calls it the mystery because it was something that was up until that point not necessarily known. It was a revelation. Everyone could read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They could read the prophets. They knew that the Jewish people had special claims. They knew about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew about the imprisonment and the slavery in Egypt and then God calling Moses and the people to leave Egypt and occupy the land. They had all of that stuff available to them. They knew about the sacrifices, but they didn't know that there was a God in heaven who loved everyone and he wanted to save them and reconcile them no matter who they were, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. So the reason Paul calls the gospel a mystery is because it's a message that came by revelation and it was given to Paul. He's preaching the gospel. It's called the good news, the gospel of grace in Acts 20, 24, because it's proclaimed to the undeserving. It's called the gospel of power because God never asks us to do anything without providing the power in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. So when God says, I want you to turn from your sin." And I want you to believe the gospel. I want you to believe that God sent Jesus from heaven to the earth. 
to live for you and then die for you and come back to life for you. Paul understood the gospel. And so, again, he calls it the gospel of glory because it's the gospel that declares about a better state of things in the future in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Elsewhere, he actually talks about what is the gospel. And I want you to just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, because if you don't understand what the gospel is, then none of this is going to make sense. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about it. He says in verse 1, moreover, brethren, the idea being your brethren, your people who actually know, love, believe what's been said. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried, and that he arose again on the third day, according to the scripture. And he goes on and says, and he was seen alive by Cephas, and then the rest of the twelve. And then he says, and then finally, eventually, by me. And he uses the term as if one born out of time. He uses a, a phrase that speaks of a person that you would normally speak of a stillborn or a premature baby that is, is whose life cycle is thrown off course. But Paul says, look, this Jesus who I'm telling you died on the cross for your sin and rose for, from the dead for your justification. He's alive. He's alive and he can change you. And so that's what he's talking about. That's the gospel that he wants to preach, that Jesus died for our sins. He, that Jesus rose for our justification, Romans 4.25. His grace can save us, Titus 2.11. His blood can cleanse us, 1 John 1.7. His power can keep us, 1 Peter 1.4. Jesus says, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, John 6, 37. The Spirit says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2, 21. Over and over again, he goes, Jesus is inviting you. The Spirit is inviting you. Forgiveness of sin is promised to everyone who believes and trusts him. In John 1, 12, it says, and as many as received Christ, he made children of God. People ask me all the time, how can I know that I'm saved? My answer, how can you not know? I'm going to ask you a question. Do you have a driver's license? Most people know. They know if they have one. They know if it's suspended. 
They remember taking a test and they remember going to the DMV and they remember getting their photo and they remember it being issued to them. How do you forget something like having a driver's license? And how do you forget something like coming to the realization that your sin is overwhelming and the only person who can make your sin and guilt go away is the Lord Jesus. And you receive him. And you pray. And you say, Lord, if this gospel is true, I want, I want this for my life. I want to believe it. And you receive it. And then you understand. You get to open up your Bible and you see things you've never seen. You pray for things that you've never been able to pray for. In verse 20, Paul says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The expression is very interesting in the original language. It translates a Greek word which is linked to the idea of freedom of speech when he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may speak boldly. That expression, speak boldly, is an idiomatic expression that literally came into the language from the Greek people. Now, our constitution guarantees the freedom of speech or the right to speak or to write about ideas or to think thoughts that you have the freedom to think what you want to think and say what you want to say, even though it's odd or even though it may not even be true. Greek citizens were given a similar freedom of speech. It was called the word, to speak boldly. It meant the freedom to be outspoken, bold, fearless in the presence of people, even though they were of high rank. In other words, it's the Greek idea that you mind your P's and Q's because there's certain things that you don't say to certain people. Like when I met with the president. And I said to the president, well, the president said to me, you look so familiar to me. There's just something about you that's so familiar. Do I know you? I want, here's what I wanted to say. Well, Mr. President, we have something in common. We're both half white and we're both half trash. But you can't say that to the president. That's just wrong. There's certain things that you just don't do. But for the Greeks, they were given this special privilege to speak. And so Paul refers to himself as an ambassador in chains. In that culture, in that world, an ambassador was a person who was sent by a king or a sovereign or a dignitary. And that ambassador carried with him the speech and the, and the message that was entrusted to him. And he was to be afforded all of the privileges and considerations that were, that were to be given to an ambassador. Earlier, Paul had called himself 
a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles, chapter 3, verse 1. A prisoner of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 1. Why is he in prison? He lists three reasons. Number one, I'm in prison for the Lord. Number two, I'm in prison for the Gentiles. And number three, I'm in prison here for the gospel. In a real sense, these three reasons are really one reason. Paul preached that the Gentiles are no longer alienated from the covenant of God. Paul preached that Jesus reconciles what was previously divided. Men from God, men from each other. Paul is preaching that there's forgiveness and grace and mercy that's available to everyone. And there were people who did not like that message. John Stott writes, he was faithful to the gospel itself. To the Lord who had revealed it to him. And to the Gentiles who received its blessings. His faithfulness to these three cost him his freedom, unquote. Paul prays for freedom. Not for, from jail, but in jail. The freedom to preach the gospel and share Christ. He repeats the word boldly. Verse 19, 20 as I ought to speak. This is a reference to clarity and completeness of speech. When he's saying, as I ought to, he is inviting us to consider that he wants clarity, conviction, completeness of speech. He doesn't want to muddy the waters or compromise the gospel message. And so that's the idea. We pray for similar opportunities to share Christ, to preach the truth, to speak the truth in love. We want to tell the truth in such a way that it will be understood and embraced. You see, this is the one thing that most, I shouldn't say most, I don't want to say that. This is a thing that many churches find themselves struggling with. And that is to be faithful to the gospel. And what is the gospel? Remember what I've said? The gospel is the good news. And what is the good news? The good news has to be preceded by the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinners. Estranged from God. That this holy God, in order to exercise justice and love, and mercy, wants to forgive your sin, your rebellion, and your disobedience. The evil, black, dark wickedness that is inside of us, God wants to forgive. And he's willing to forgive in Christ by faith. He's already talked about it in Ephesians chapter 2. Because you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. But imagine a person who hears this message and they want to believe that their religion can save them. Or their culture can save them. Or their language can save them. Or their gender or their ethnicity or their sexual expression can save them. But nothing could be further from the truth. What a description of the war 
Paul is an ambassador, think about it, in chains. This is the visible evidence of the invisible war. William MacDonald writes, quote, ambassadors are generally granted diplomatic immunity from arrest and imprisonment, but men will tolerate almost anything better than they will tolerate the gospel. No other subject stirs such emotion, arouses such hostility and suspicion, and provokes such persecution, unquote. At least now, just for a moment, there's a tiny window in our culture where Democrat and Republican, believer and unbeliever, even though there are some unbelievers who hate it, they see Billy Graham lying in state in the Capitol Rotunda, and they have the freedom to go online and watch any one of his many messages. And Billy Graham repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly said, God loves you. God sent Jesus Christ into the world to save you. He told presidents that message. He told stars and celebrities that message. He told prisoners that message. When he was a young man, when he was just a Bible student, he went with J. Edwin Orr to to England where there's this little Methodist museum. It was the house where John Wesley lived. And, uh, and there was this one particular place in the house. And, and the, the tour guide said, this is where John Wesley slept. And this is where he prayed. And you could see the indentations on the wooden floor where John Wesley prayed. And so they all left the room and they got back into their tour bus, but they looked around and one of them was missing. And J. Edwin Orr went back and there was a young Billy Graham with his knees on the place where John Wesley used to pray. And he was praying, Lord, let it happen again. Hallelujah is right. What will happen if you actually believe what the gospel says about you and your life? And we see the believer's peace. Look what it says in verse 21. But that you may also know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. We don't know very much about Paul's friend Tychicus. He may have been Paul's secretary writing the letter that we're reading at this very moment. We know that he was a faithful friend. We know that he's called a beloved brother. We know that he's loved by Paul and the church. I mean this in the truest sense of the word. He was a soul brother. He was loved. Pause for just a second. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend who knows about you? Who knows what you're doing? Who's a beloved brother or sister and a faithful minister in the Lord? When I was reading this verse, you know what I was thinking about again? It's every preacher's nightmare to use himself as the illustration. 
Do you realize that when you're taught in seminary or in Bible college to preach, you're repeatedly told, don't talk about yourself. And I've tried to do that. But every once in a while, it's important that you know about me. Here's Paul saying, I want you to know about my affairs and how I'm doing. You see, I'm doing great. Guess what? I have no plans to leave my wife. I love her. She loves me. My children and their children are serving the Lord. And I'm so grateful to God for that. My health is improving. I am grateful for that. Do you want to know how I'm doing? How I'm really doing is I'm really concerned about you. You're the thing that that preoccupies me, that troubles me, and that stirs me. Every time I hear that a husband is leaving his wife, every time I hear that a marriage is falling apart, every time I I hear that someone has taken their own life, every time I hear that, that some horrible and terrible thing is happening in your life, I cringe, uh, and, and it isn't the kind of cringe where I, I don't want to do anything about it. It is, I want to pray for you. I want to love you. I want to minister to you. I want to tell you that there's a provision for you, that there's grace and there's mercy. I'm not saying that everything is going to always go right and that there's never going to be a problem. But it's okay for you to tell me because I care about what's happening to you. For Paul, Tychicus is entrusted with the very letter that we've been studying all of this time. Can you imagine? Tychicus has this jewel that we have been studying and learning so much about. Can you imagine if he was beaten up and somebody took the letter and then burned it? But God had a plan and a purpose. Paul is going to send the letter to the Colossians. He's going to send a brief correspondence to Philemon. His second job was to tell the saints how Paul was doing. Tychicus is mentioned in Titus chapter 3 verse 12. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 11 and 12. Before Paul actually is going to die. He's by the way. He's going to be found guilty at a later trial. And he is going to be beheaded. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. These are some of the final words that he'll ever say. He says quote. Only Luke is with me. That's Dr. Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. Get Mark and bring him with you. They were estranged. For he is useful to me in the ministry. He wants reconciliation and usefulness. And Tychicus. I've sent to Ephesus. When he writes those words, apparently these guys knew who Tychicus was. And he goes, I'm sending him back to you. He knows you and you know him. He'll be honest with you. He won't misrepresent me. Just like he hasn't misrepresented you to me. We're not aware of any correspondence that Tychicus ever wrote. We're not aware of a sermon that he ever preached. He's not given credit for any notable deed. But we know that Paul was a great man. And like most great men, he had to surround himself with faithful brothers and sisters who serve. 
Someone once said that for the loss of a nail, lose a horseshoe. For the loss of a horseshoe, lose a a horse. For the loss of a horse, lose a soldier. For the loss of a soldier, lose the battle. For the loss of the battle, lose the kingdom. How could a nail or a horseshoe or a horse or a soldier matter? It's only when what that soldier does turns the tide of the war. You've already learned that your soldier's in a battle and that you're called to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to walk in Jesus. And remember, you put the whole armor on and you leave the whole armor on. In verse 22, he says, whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. This tells me something. It tells me that Paul is willing to disclose his very real circumstances to people who actually cared. That's why he says that he may comfort your hearts. Why? They're concerned he's in jail. Why? They're concerned he might not live. Why? They're upset that things aren't going the way that they're supposed to go. But Paul says, you know what? God has a plan and a purpose. It's all unfolding exactly as he said it would. And in verse 23, look what it says. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already mentioned that Jesus is our peace who's broken down every wall in chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. And that the sacrifice of Jesus creates this single humanity that makes peace possible. And then in chapter 5 verse 2, we're told to walk in love as Christ loved us. He loves us sacrificially. We're to love each other sacrificially. Love is rooted in sacrifice and yields the fruit of peace. Love produces peace. Peace is the supernatural fruit of the reconciliation. Peace makes possible the reality of the gospel. You get to have peace because Jesus brings it. Pause. Satan offers no peace. You can't negotiate with them. You can't argue and negotiate with the spiritual hosts of wickedness. You may say to dark powers, leave me alone. How many of them do you think go, okay? None of them. In verse 24, it says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus in sincerity. Paul offers a final prayer. Grace for everyone who loves the Lord Jesus in sincerity. I've told you what sincerity means. It comes from a, uh, it, it, it's a Greek word that's transliterated into the Latin sine sire, which means without wax. It means what you see is what you get. Remember, it's the ancient custom that they would make marble busts and sometimes they would break off a nose or an ear and they would mix marble powder with wax and they would stick 
the person's nose back on or the person's ear back on. And when the wax melted in the sunshine of the day, the ear would fall off or the nose would fall off. So sine sire came to mean without wax. That means what you see is what you get. Here's the big question. Do you really love him? Not just pretend to love him. Not just pretend for your wife or your husband or your friends or your family. Do you really love him? Do you love him when no one else is looking? Another translation reads, Grace to all who love Jesus with an undying love. The text reads, in in corruption, literally. In in corruption. The idea being not subject to decay. Grace is love's companion. Grace and love produce an immortal outlook Hope. This is a love that's never exhausted. It's never consumed. It's the kind of love that never goes away. For those of you who are mothers or fathers, hopefully, and I ask you, do you love your children? Hopefully you say yes. If you're a grandparent, you go, do you love your grandchildren? Yes. Can you imagine the love ever going away? No. This is why it's so heartbreaking to me. When people say, I never loved her. I never loved him. The moment you say those nasty, filthy words to me, I'm going to say, you've repented, right? You understand that that's a sin. Your sin is an egregious offense against God. And God wants you to repent. He wants you to turn from that sin. He wants you to obey him. Remember the Bible says that you're to love one another. Well, I don't. I can't love her. Well, the Bible says you're to love your neighbor. Who lives closer to to you than her? I can't even do that. The Bible says love your enemy. Would you say you hate her? You're not going to give me any way out of this, are you? No. Because the Bible doesn't give you any way out of it. A long time ago in the March 1978 Reader's Digest, it carried this story from a Sunday school teacher. Quote, For St. Patrick's Day, I asked our five-year-olds in Sunday school to bring something green that you love. The next Sunday, they brought the usual green hats, green sweaters, green books... But one boy entered with a great big grin. Behind him, wearing a green dress, was his four-year-old sister. Bring something that you love. Do you love Jesus? Do you bring him with you? Paul began the letter by wishing grace and peace for the reader. No two words summarize this letter with greater power 
than those two words. Grace is the means and the reason that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Peace is the result of that salvation. We can bear with one another in love, it says in Ephesians 4.20. We can walk in love as Christ did, it says in 5.2. And we can love Jesus with a love that never, ever goes away. Even when you go away, according to verse 24. Read it again. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. So be it. Amen. Do you love him now? Really? According to the Bible, you can love him forever. <laughs> Jesus would never send us into a fight without the equipment or the ammunition need to survive. We can't fight our spiritual battle without prayer's bullets. We can't experience grace or peace or genuine love apart from Jesus. No wonder Paul begins and ends his letter with grace. We've reached the end of Ephesians. But we haven't reached the end of its importance or its impact. So stay strong in prayer. Hold on to courage. And then stay close to faithful friends. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would be unwilling to simply open up our Bibles and read it. We would be unwilling to pray without thinking or caring. That we would be unwilling to allow the instructions to go unheeded. Lord, again I pray. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you will allow these men and women to care about each other, to pray for one another, and to be really concerned about what's going on in each other's life. And again, Father, we thank you for grace. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for mercy. In Jesus' name. Amen. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Let's stand. See you.